Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. I have had this guest marked on my personal calendar because I've been so excited for so many reasons. Kelly Buchanan Spillers is the CMO of Infor. Now, if you don't know Infor, this is a very large organization, over $3 billion in revenue, 7,000 customers. They're in 70 countries. They were acquired by Coke Industries a number of years ago for a massive sum of $13 billion. I was nervous just to begin with, and I was intrigued who their CMO now would be. And when I dug in, I was even more intrigued. Their CMO is someone who came over from leading digital marketing at L'Oreal, a brand that we associate with beauty products, compared to a company like Infor that, to be honest, I associate as this big red ERP solution. In this podcast, your perception is going to be flipped, just as mine was, and and Kelly gives her approach of bringing B2C strategies into a B2B organization. And I think she put it really simply by saying her mindset is people are people. So this podcast is all about how to relate to people and how to bring that consumer mindset into whatever interaction you're trying to create with your brand, your approach. She talks about this from a BDR team approach as well as a marketing channel approach. Here's our chat. Tune in now. Kelly, this is really exciting to have you here. Infor is a really large company, and I'm so excited that I'm talking to their CMO. Even more so, I'm curious how I'm talking to their CMO who used to spend over five years at a company like L'Oreal. That is such a jump for a B2B brand of the scale of Infor to say, that's the person we want. And and I'm curious the story behind this. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And thank you so much, Randy, for having me. Um, It's a question I get a lot. Honestly, I, the way I tell people the story, and this is truly how I experienced it individually. I didn't have huge plans to leave L'Oreal. Frankly, I was loving my career there um, and I love the beauty industry. I probably wear and consume more products today than I ever did (laughs) before having started there. Um, But truly, I had just started or or was about a quarter of the way through um, an executive MBA program at NYU Stern. And I saw that I was becoming a beauty marketer. And not that there's anything wrong with that. As I mentioned, I love beauty. But the big difference for me is I felt like I might have been accidentally boxing myself into one industry. And I had to ask myself from a career perspective, did I go to or did I make the decision to go to grad school to stay at a beauty company? Or do I want to spread my wings and start thinking about what's next? So what I tell people, I kind of turned my cab light on and uh, started thinking about what could be next for myself. I did what a lot of people do, I think, and and that's starting to return calls or starting to tell people that, yes, I will, you know, answer that LinkedIn message or yes, I will return um, that text message or that call. And the way I came to Infor is is a fantastic one. It's a story of network. It's a story of, frankly, being open to something that sounds extremely challenging and, frankly, brand new. 
So the context was it was like July, June or July of 2021 when I started here at Infor. But okay. leading up to that, I got a call from a friend, uh, a mentor, who said, hey, can I, can I have a copy of your resume? And uh, of course, I didn't know what it was for, but that resume passed hands four or five times, and I landed in the, the inbox of my now new boss, Kevin Samuelson, who's the CEO here at Infor. And we're, our conversation started very in, in a very straightforward way. We talked about what I knew about the B2B software industry, what I knew about Infor, which wasn't a lot, frankly, what I knew about what it was to be inside the B2B SaaS world. And what intrigued me was all the things I didn't know. And I looked at Infor like a puzzle, like a, a whole opportunity to go to school all over again, but in parallel to finishing my grad degree. And the reason I ended up making the choice to, to come to Infor was not only because I was really intrigued by Kevin's vision, um, and I think that that vision and that intrigue of meeting your potential new boss always comes with its own, its own little warning signal, because if you really like that person and you really connect with them, you're almost thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, did I just meet my next boss? Like, is this it? Did I just, right. did I just unintuitively make this decision uh, to come to this company? But also I liked how much there was to know. And what's amazing about Infor is we do so many things that, that are part of those unsung hero companies. We make so much of what happens every day, uh, whether it's within the supply chain for bringing products from one place to the other, or even individually understanding how an end good is made. A lot of that is powered by the software that we produce for our customers. So I ended up in this job because it was less about leaving L'Oreal and more about applying all of the things that I've learned across the whole of my career and what I was learning in real time at NYU to a new opportunity. So um, as we started talking about the role at Infor, I, I decided obviously to, to join and that's its own story in and of itself. That's really fascinating. And and I think when I look at a company like Infor and I look at a company like L'Oreal, Infor, not to say that L'Oreal is a customer of Infor, but it's almost as though you are now providing solutions for the companies that you were at for so long in terms of, as you said, distribution and supply chain and all the complexities in there of companies of such scale. So without a doubt, you would have had an understanding of the problem that you are trying to solve for your typical buyer. And, and I like the way you described the challenge that was ahead and how it dovetailed with the MBA that you were doing. But I'm curious how you sold yourself. You know, you, you explained that your resume landed in the CEO's inbox, but how did you sell yourself? And maybe within that, my understanding is you didn't start as CMO, you started as chief digital officer. What was that and what was the disruption you had planned to bring to a B2B company? Yeah, I. you're right. I started here as the chief digital officer. We had a very explicit conversation about, frankly, where I was in my life, where I was in my grad school studies, which was extremely demanding. And uh, the fact that I was going to be coming into a company that was also going into transformation. Um, and oh, by the way, also have a personal life to manage and try to maintain. <laughs> so with all of these pieces and puzzles, um, to be honest, the conversation started with where are my skills best offered uh, within this company? So we, we both made the agreement. All right. We like each other. I want to come on. I have a limited capacity or I have a finite amount of capacity. 
what can I do to actually make an impact while I'm also finishing school? And what we discussed and agreed was, well, where my strengths lie are in digital marketing. So let's make me the chief digital officer. I'll come in and help transform the marketing organization, put together the center of excellence model, which is what we've uh, we've done over the last six months to a year. And in the more recent months, we've worked very, very hard on refining that model. But let's let's work on that. Let's get our digital marketing capabilities all up to snuff. Let's make sure that they're all consolidated and we do the appropriate talent assessments on the business. We do the appropriate um, MarTech stack rationalization and just frankly understand where the investments are, both in people, processes, and technologies. I'll work on that and get successful in the next six months, and then we'll see where we go from there. And from there, I became the chief marketing officer at the end of 21. That's, that's so exciting. And obviously, whatever you did in those first six months gave a lot of confidence to the organization. Now, this is a audio only podcast, but I'm, I'm watching a video feed of you and behind you is your website printed on a board of some sort. So digital, no doubt, is continued to be top of mind for you. How in making that transition from chief digital officer to CMO, was it taking more on? Did you replace yourself as chief digital officer or did you kind of bring that digital mindset to the CMO table? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. And a lot of the work that you're seeing behind me that your listeners maybe can't see is that we're now starting to explore new territories for our brand. So that's, you know, that's something we can absolutely begin to explore and discuss too. But um, to your point or to your question, I, I didn't replace myself as the chief digital officer per se, because it was almost as if that role were a temporary one to enable me to move into the next role. But it also had a really finite set or a really specific set of outcomes that I was looking to drive. And that was establishing the structure of the business and the structure of the, comp- the marketing capability. So once we got past understanding you know, how are we going to work, who are going to be our set of partners, and where are our strongest members of the team... I then moved into the marketing role and expanded my scope, which included business development reps, which um, sometimes sit in marketing, sometimes sit in sales, um, but also expanding across the whole of communications as well. And a lot of what, frankly, the first six months was about for me in that previous role of chief digital officer was learning the whole of the company. So I had a very discrete task of understanding how are we going to operate creating our digital marketing campaigns But simultaneously, I was learning all of the really complex products that we have, all of the really complex industries that we had. And all of that was kind of sitting in the back of my mind, knowing that, okay, the the greater opportunity on the other side of this is applying all of these strategic lenses to all these different industries that we operate in. It was a great opportunity to kind of pass down some of that remit that I had structured and exposed down to my direct reports. And now I have a more strategic lens across the whole of marketing. Um, supporting the executive leadership team. That's fascinating. And and for people tuning in, you hit on the BDR org reporting in through marketing. To give everyone perspective to the scale again of Infor, 17,000 employees and roughly 300 of which are in this marketing organization. I'm, I'm curious how you went about introducing yourself to that group was it through the work that you had done over the six months? And how did you sell them on this idea of, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but becoming a digital first company, even though it's obviously a technology company? Yeah, the truth of the matter is, I didn't have any preconceived notions about how things were supposed to work 
in a B2B software company. So because I don't have a playbook to run, I was running the playbook of B2C, right? Where you're, you're creating a product from a consumer's lens first and only for them. And that every piece of content that um, hits your screen, whatever the case may be, should assume that it knows something about you and it's filling a need that you might not even be perceiving to have. So the way I introduced myself to the organization was that, look, I don't know more than you, but I do know something about how we can communicate to a consumer in a way that resonates with them. And that's truly through storytelling, product innovation, and personalization. Because at L'Oreal, we never produced a product that didn't have the consumer's need in mind. So we almost reversed our way into creating our products and our, and our incremental innovations. The same is actually true within B2B software. Now, what's, what's also interesting is the time frame by which that innovation actually comes to, into play. Because our software is so deeply integrated into the way people run their companies every day that we can't just launch innovations every month. We would make them crazy. And they also wouldn't be able to take advantage of it on in a timely manner without a ton of enablement. So the way I introduced myself was being honest about what I didn't know and honest about what I'm good at. And then frankly, developing a leadership team right underneath me that were good at all the things where I was weak. And we're finally just getting into this flywheel motion where we're really starting to feel the rhythm of the business and, uh, and are now beginning to function as a team. But I want to touch on your point about how we're 300 people. So 150 of those people are business development reps. So wow. they are oftentimes, yeah, the, the first touch point of how people interact with our brand, how people interact with our company. And they have to basically, after probably eight to 13 different emails or ways of <laughs> trying to touch base with a prospect, they're often the first person that touches a customer or a prospect. So them understanding the way we want them to position in for the way we're trying to understand the customer's problem and we can be the solution is extremely critical. So I, I love the fact that the BDR team reports into marketing because they are an extension of our brand. That's, that's so well put and, and really tees up the second part of our conversation here, Kelly. We're going to take a quick break, though, and we'll be back to talk about the buyer journey with Kelly from Infor. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. To achieve change, we have to be open to change. And I need to commend both Infor and Kelly for being so open to changing their direction. You look at Infor, a brand that maybe some of us think is this older ERP type of solution. No offense, I've always had tons of respect for Infor, but they are clearly open to change. And they showed that by bringing in a chief digital officer, giving them a runway and letting them come in and make changes to the brand and the way they serve their customers. At the same time, you have Kelly sitting there saying, I wanna change my path 
I don't necessarily want to always be a beauty marketer. I want to go back to school. I want to learn how to make that jump to the executive level. And I'm not going to simply do so in my industry. I'm going to do so in an area that is different. And she took risks. Both sides here took risk. And sometimes we need to do that to achieve the change that we want for our brand and our personal journey. Kelly, before we took a break there, you were talking about the role of a BDR in being that first touch, but there's a lot of different touches that we as marketers try and plan for as a first touch. Someone could be coming, as you would say, from any digital touch point. How have you been trying to reposition in for, regardless of where someone's coming from? We have been really focused on a couple of different pieces. Um, one is being explicit about the industries that we serve. And that, I think, is a significant point of differentiation in this massive, massive space where companies that we compete with are more than willing to do everything for any industry. We specialize explicitly in three, in the services industry, in our manufacturing and discrete manufacturing industries, and our process and distribution industries. So the way we open the door to any customer, to your point, is saying, by the way, we specialize in the work that you do. So it helps us say, we're already experts. You don't have to go buy that expertise from a third party. It's actually built into our software. So that's kind of the first point is establishing ourselves as those experts. But secondly, ensuring that they know we have expertise in this area through our customer references. And I've heard some of your other guests talk about how nobody can talk about your software better than your customers. And I totally agree with that. It's absolutely true. So we try to open the door with that expertise, bring in a customer as a third party testimonial, but also to say, um, we understand your problems and our, our software has actually solved those problems purely on their installation. And ERP um, or enterprise resource planning, for those of you that aren't familiar, is a very complex space. Kind of put simply and making it visual for those that are listening, if you think about that scene in The Matrix where Neo finally sees The Matrix and numbers are kind of flying all over the place. Overwhelmed, yeah. They're overwhelmed, but he understands them, right? He can interpret them. That's effectively what an ERP is doing underneath all of the machines, all of the people, all of the different software that's connecting those pieces and parts together. That's what an ERP is doing underneath is it sees and understands the numbers of the business and helps those business makers make deterministic business decisions on that information. So as I was talking about a BDR, a BDR has to understand this extremely high level amount of complexity and simplify the door by using those three points. You know, we're experts, our software solves your problems, and oh, by the way, here's a customer that can speak on our behalf. So it's very easy for me to sit here and say that. But a BDR, of course, has to, as we said before, have multiple touches before they'll talk to a customer and actually be able to get that point across. But that's the way to make it simple. That's a way for us to establish our credibility in the space and to have a third party kind of come in and give us um, our five stars and share that we're we're the right selection for a couple of reasons. So I want to take a step back within that that answer, which was you know really well outlined, and and bring in the BDRs again for a moment, but also other channels that you might have. 
as you said, there is a lot of different industries you can solve for, but there's really three high-level verticals. And you know, to make this applicable to anyone, think about when you have a few verticals. Are you breaking up all of your entry points across those verticals? So if I discover you at an event or I discover you on an ad or a BDR reaches out, are they broken into those verticals? As in, are you teaching the BDRs one of those three areas or do they have to be able to greet any customer? No, you're, the latter is true. So I'm, I mentioned the top three verticals and of course there are micro verticals that live within that. So services, for example, would have healthcare and public sector, but we believe in people being actual industry experts in their field when they come into Infor. So they might have a couple of different matrices that we align them to. So they'll have an industry vertical or micro vertical, as you just mentioned, and they'll also have a product alignment so that we, we're calling them T-shaped so that they can not only have deep industry expertise, but they understand across horizontally all the different products that might be enable a customer's problems to be solved through Infor software. Um, another piece of it for us is interoperability, where you might have a bunch of other software investments that you're looking to realize or capitalize over time. We can also play well with those. So BDRs not only have explicit uh, vertical alignments, all of our marketers do as well. So that was a big part of the transformation that I um, was a part of when I first joined Infor, was moving to this vertical industry-specific P&L so that we actually measured our profitability um, by lines of business. Interesting. So the other 150 marketers of the 300 that are not directly customer facing per se, how are they split up? Are they also organized across these three verticals or are you figuring out which one is the most opportune in the moment to focus on? Also split by vertical. We also found that it was easier for us to find talent that was aligned to um, automotive marketing, aligned to um, healthcare marketing. And it allowed us to not only continue the continuity of industry-specific expertise, um, but it also allowed us to, frankly, get more um, aggressive in our DEI strategy and finding the type of people where they sit, or the type of marketers that we're looking for to bring diverse uh, perspectives and a diverse wealth of experiences to our teams. So they're also striped by industry. So I, I'd love to understand within all of that, and, and we were hitting right out of the gate on your mindset to bring the B2C mindset in. What are some B2C tactics that you've used for some of these first touches, whether they're with a BDR or whether they're across the marketing team and some of the channel layups that they're putting in place? So one of the things that we've done very recently, or, or not even recently, that we've looked at very holistically is ensuring that our presence is cleaned up all across the board, whether it's a third-party um, channel, like I, I heard you had a guest from G2 talk about software reviews. Um, so making sure that our presence is cleaned up and unified and protected, it's something that was not, frankly, uh, was not a huge priority in ensuring that our our the way we look, the way we show up, and the way we sound was consistent. And when I mean protected, oftentimes there's a lot of companies that try to compete directly with us whether it's a small ERP company that might rip some of the language right from our website and create a, a replication of our site elsewhere, or even steal some of our likeness and use some of the ways um, that we've positioned ourselves on their own websites. One of the big things that I look at is kind of a B2C 
priority is protecting the image of our brand. So one of the first things we did was actually clean up a lot of the things that we found um, that were diluting our brand equity and start to put in brand guidelines to protect the way we look, sound, and are interpreted out there in the business. And with that enabled us to um, one, get better product reviews across all the product review sites, which is kind of a B2C tactic, right? Everybody uses bizarre voice when it comes to on the B2C world, when it comes to creating reviews and then creating content for your site so that there's more searchability. And sites like G2 are exactly that for us, but also to clean up our SEO strategy. So a lot of our, um, our last year has been upgrading our marketing technology stack and then enhancing it with the ways that we want to be known by enhancing our SEO strategy, both where we live, but where our in at info.com, but all of our partner sites, ensuring that their communications are up to date, all of these review sites that I mentioned previously, and any customer that's ever posted a testimonial about us on their respective sites or partner sites all have updated language. So frankly, it was kind of going back to the basics, things that are um, probably you know table stakes for a lot of B2C consumer brands. Um, we actually started with the fundamentals when I first arrived. It's really interesting. I, I like this idea back to basics and and to get really basic. And and I asked you about this one before we recorded today because I trickled to Infor's website for the first time in a while. And I appreciated some of the simplicity. Now, when I when I eventually got to the website, really simple message, which maybe we'll have time to talk about. But one of the tools that you were using was a very basic landing page to greet someone off of a LinkedIn click. And it, it broke down high-level categories. I didn't have to navigate a monster menu, which, you know, Infor has a monster menu of various different industries it solves for. It felt very B2C to me. And I'm, I'm curious how examples like that, that are maybe in the weeds, but how are you bringing some of these plays to your team and showing them what has worked for you in the past at companies like L'Oreal? Yeah, I have to give a shout out to my social team because, um, of course, they're the ones who are behind all these individual tactics that make a big difference to your point about the user experience. But I think the way we needed to start talking about marketing internally was not as if we were playing a different game than the B2C game. I think there's a lot of perceptions about how B2B marketing is supposed to go and a lot of or, or is supposed to get executed, how long it's meant to take, how much we're meant to spend. And a lot of the time I spent in the first six months of my role here was kind of dispelling those myths and just doing stuff. <laughs> so putting putting changes into place like you like you just described um, was a small kind of nod to if this makes people understand what Infor is about faster, then yeah, we might not ever be able to measure the efficacy of um, this experience down to the penny. But what we are doing is reinforcing what we stand for, and that actually builds brand equity. So the way I've asked the team to think about all of this, and, and significant portions of my team have, have actually come from the B2C world for this reason, is to say, however you experience a website to, is meant to behave, that's how we should be thinking about our website. However you experience content should be read and how you really enjoy it, whether it's snackable like TikTok and it takes you three to 10 seconds to actually get what's going on, you get a laugh, you learn something, or um, you know, you're emotionally moved by it. That's how our content should also come across. There shouldn't be different expectations for B2B just because we're selling software. Like People have a less and less attention span every single day, and there's no reason why a business buyer has a different mode of thinking or a mode of learning just because they're on our website. 
So we have to remember that people are just people and they're consuming content across every channel, regardless of whether or not they're at home or they're working on something for work. So we, we have to think about that experience as, as what we're trying to design for first, as opposed to thinking about the fact that we're selling software first. I love that. I love the, those words. People are just people. And, and then we'll, we'll pause on that. We'll be right back here with Kelly. We'll hit on a few more rapid fire questions to wrap up this episode. To add a little bit of color to the instance that I asked Kelly about, if you click on their LinkedIn profile and you try and visit Infor, you're not sent to this overwhelming homepage. And don't get me wrong, there are some great simple homepages that many of you may be hosting, but she gives simple selections. She's doing this with a tool called Linktree that I looked up. And at first it feels almost too simple, but I think sometimes that's how we need to greet someone. We need to give them the simple choices for them to raise their hand and say, this is the type of brand that I am. Now, when we have understanding of their intent and we know who they are, then obviously we can customize and we can personalize and we can deliver a more catered experience. But when we don't have that, use simple tools like this one to allow someone to opt in and then greet them with the right experience every step from there forward. Kelly, this has been a really interesting path. Your journey to CMO is unique. We've talked about it coming from B2C, becoming a chief digital officer. In a B2B organization, usually we don't have chief digital officers. So that in itself was unique. But what is your advice for the next CMO, the person who is striving to get to that seat? What is the right place to start their marketing career? Wow, that's that's a tough question because I wouldn't have said that this is what I was striving for even when I started the interview process. And I also wouldn't have been able to tell you that this is where I intended to be in the end. But I think you need to know what it is you're out to get when you enter into a position of this nature, um, of this remit and of this scale. What I was out to get was making an impact on a business that needed to think differently. And I knew that my profile and having come from B2C was not going to allow me to layer on any older or different types of jaded B2B thinking, ways that might have been um, successful in the past, but weren't going to bring software companies into the future. So for me, it was about understanding what I wanted out of the role and uh, knowing what kind of support I was going to need to build around me to be successful and being very, very honest with myself about the areas where I was weak. And frankly, relying on the people that I bring in on my team to help me be better uh, and to allow them to be their best by learning from them and just getting out of their way, getting great people in place, get out of the way. So my advice to someone that's looking to move into the C-suite or become a CMO is know what it is you want to get out of this role. Create those definitions for yourself very early um, or even before you start interviewing for roles such as this one and ensure that you have people that you can bring along with you to help you where you might have weaknesses. Really well put. And uh, you definitely carved out that opportunity in that chief digital uh, opportunity to create this uh, path as CMO and, and shape it the way it is. 
I want to hit a little bit more on content. And, and we just started to graze on the importance of content at the end of our discussion. But what makes for great content today in your experience in terms of what's sent to you? Great content has to have a couple of different structures. And, and none of this is new, but I think it's it's really important because it's so simple. It has to have a beginning, middle, and end and tell a story. It has to provoke you in some way, whether it's, oh, you're learning something. I didn't realize that's what Infor did. Or, wow, I didn't know that was your customer. What did you do for them? Or, oh, I didn't know they had that problem. That's really interesting. I never would have thought that customer had that problem. So just very simple narrative, beginning, middle, end, leave them provoked one way or the other and create some emotion. And these days, the con the ways into good content are actually shorter and shorter, but you almost need to Hansel and Gretel the content, right? You have to breadcrumb it out for people to stay engaged. And you can't expect that they're going to have a conversion action the first time you expose them to content. So you have to have a long threaded narrative that's going to bring people along with you and prove to them that you actually are an expert in your field. So keep it simple when it comes to content, but know that you're not you're going to need to touch them more than once before you're able to engage them in a conversion action. That's so well put. Now, what that really tells me is you still have to hook them to want to come back at the beginning. And one of the concepts that you said was so important to you even in your L'Oreal days, was making it personalized, understanding that every product you had was for a buyer and their needs. What is the idea of personalization when it comes to marketing today? What is the idea of personalization to you? I think there are many layers to personalization. And then for Infor, it's actually really specific layers because let's take a hospital or a healthcare um, system, for example. We know that when it comes to be buying an ERP, Oftentimes, it's the C-suite and the board of directors that are helping make that decision. And when they've already made the decision that they need to replace their ERP, they're more or less signing up for heart surgery, no pun intended. But replacing an <laughs> ERP is very difficult, and no one signs up for that out of choice. They do it because they have to. So you're convincing the board of directors and the, and the C-suite of the fact that you're going to generate, one, you're not going to disrupt their business, and you're trying to help them understand you're there to de-risk it. But two, you're there to help them understand you're an expert and you've already done this for X, Y, and Z customers before. As I mentioned, please go talk to them. So not only do you need top-down support, but you need bottoms-up support. So in that same healthcare system, we might be trying to convince nurses that we're going to save them time because they no longer have to struggle with scheduling and they no longer need to struggle with understanding where and how to order the next supplies before they run out. These are literally life and death decisions. They can't reach for a product that isn't on the shelf if someone wasn't already thinking about the fact that they were out of stock and had them in backup pre-orders. So we need that ground level support, even from different layers of the organization, to prove that the systems that they have aren't working and show them use cases where Infor has actually solved these problems in the past. So the way we communicate and personalize are at multiple levels of an organization, depending on the buying group. So from top down, you're trying to de-risk the opportunity for a C-suite or a board of directors. And from the bottoms up, you're trying to get the actual end users to show them that we have interfaces that make their lives easier and frankly, anticipate their needs. So hopefully these two things meet in the middle and we end up becoming the vendor of preference. I love that. That was such a great answer in terms of coming at it from both ends. But to me, what I heard was ability to solve problems and fill needs 
Whereas a lot of us, I think, associate personalization is the fact that I know your name. Uh, so it's <laughs> it's so much deeper than that. And and I love how you walked through that. My last question for you is is maybe the toughest of the day, and that is personal balance. And you alluded to that in your interview with the CEO as to you know you're you're doing your MBA. You've got professional aspirations, but you're also trying to find balance at home. How do you make that happen now? I think my husband would say, I don't know what balance is. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, um, I'm a very ambitious, energetic, and social person. So if there's not a lot going on in my life, I'm probably pretty bored. And the truth of the matter is, um, I love working the way I like to work might not be the way others like to work. And I'm, I'm totally okay with that. But for me, that means pretty much always being on um, and, you know, letting my team kind of rest over the weekend, even though I might be the one scheduling emails to send at 9am on Monday morning <laughs> for the weekend. But um, I would say I, I like to balance for me is always being engaged, whether it's having something to do at night with my friends from grad school or, networking with VCs that I met at Chief, you know, two weeks ago, or um, having this conversation with you, which is super exciting. So I like to stay busy and engaged because you never know what next connection is going to bring you, whether it's a, a customer, an opportunity, or um, frankly, a new friend. So I wouldn't say that balance is in my uh, balance isn't necessarily a priority. But I think what's pure about your answer there is the passion you have for what you're doing. And also, I'll give you credit because you you kind of skimmed over it, but you alluded to scheduling those emails to go out on Monday morning and not right. burdening someone with your degree of passion and after hours obsession. And I think that's that's such an important balance at that CMO level to realize that what is engaging for you needs to be balanced for others. And I, I give you, you know, a ton of respect for, you know, making that small sacrifice. Uh, Kelly, this has been so much fun. I, I hope I'm now one of your new friends, as you just said. Uh, I really enjoyed getting to connect with you. If you've tuned into this episode as your first, check out all the other amazing guests that I've had. I've been fortunate to interview about 140 CMOs for this podcast to date. And everyone's journey is unique. As you heard Kelly say, you don't know where it's going to take you next. So embrace it. And one day, hopefully you'll join us to tell your story on The Marketer's Journey. You've been listening to The Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.